Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening, where we are set to continue our reflections into the book of Genesis. We are rolling along here. We are in chapter 27 of the book of Genesis. This evening, we are going to be about Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, Esau, and this business of Jacob intercepting, if you will, <laughs> Isaac's firstborn blessing from Esau. But before we get into Genesis chapter 27, which will allow us to explore some important virtues, as I've noted before, the book of Genesis is all about those interpersonal dynamics, all of those relational principles and, and fruits and gifts and virtues, so we will be talking about that. I wanted to first just make a programming note and then address a question the programming note is that tomorrow I am out of town. So uh, Father Mike, as he was set to join me tomorrow evening to talk about Life is Beautiful, that is going to have to be put on hold until next week. So I'm going to re-air last week's program. If you missed last week's program, Father Mike and I talked about Calvary, his favorite movie. Right? We're talking about Calvary and Life is Beautiful because these are our favorite movies. So uh, next week, if you haven't seen Life is Beautiful, please pick up that movie, watch it. And tune in next week as Father Mike and I reflect into that incredibly, incredibly beautiful uh, script and movie. Now, as it relates to the question, I, I received a question recently that I've received on more than one occasion, and it deals with the relationship, uh, and dare I say confusion, between the God of justice in the Old Testament <laughs> and the God of love that so many people want to talk about. There's, there seems to be a discord, if you will. And I was reading another read from Peter Kraft. You've heard me quote Peter Kraft quite a few times. He is, if not my favorite author, one of my favorite authors. He, in his own reflection on the book of Genesis, was talking about a God of infinite justice and a God of infinite love. And I want to read Peter Kraft to you because I do think he hits a home run in response to that question, and for some, really, that concern about the discord between, or apparent discord between, justice and love. This is Peter Kraft, and this comes from his book, You Can Understand the Bible, a Practical and Illuminating Guide to Each Book in the Bible, page 22 and 23, as he's reflecting into the book of Genesis. He says this, It's often said that the Old Testament, especially Genesis, teaches a God of justice, in stark contrast to Jesus, who teaches a God of forgiveness and love. It is a lie, of course. The God of the Old Testament does all that he does out of love, and the Father of Jesus needs to satisfy justice as well as love. That's why Jesus had to die. I used to think that only those who never read the Bible could fall for this fallacy. But experience has taught me otherwise. Here, I just think he makes an invaluable point. I think it comes partly from misunderstanding the literary style of Genesis. It is not meant to be psychology, either of God or humanity. 
The modern style of storytelling emphasizes psychological motive and scrutinizes inner consciousness. This is simply not the style of pre-modern writing. Augustine's Confessions is the only personal introspective autobiography in pre-modern literature. Thus, the wrath of God is not meant as a description of God's own private feelings, but of his public deeds, of how those deeds look to fallen, wrathful man. Psychologically, and this is his salient point here, this is projection. When God gave Lady Julian of Norwich a showing of his wrath, she said, what? I saw no wrath, but on man's part. Brothers and sisters, God is indeed a God of justice. And thus, <laughs> we can rightfully say with Peter Kreft, a God of punishment. Because punishment is part of justice. But here's the key. Love is the motive behind all his deeds of discipline. What do we read in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 to 8? For the Lord disciplines him whom he loves. If you are left without discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So, Peter Kraft continues here. Genesis is the book of beginnings. And no subsequent change in all human history ever has or ever will alter the essential pattern of the story begun here. Gosh, is this important. Even a nuclear holocaust would be only Cain and Abel on a worldwide scale. Even the fall of Rome was only the Tower of Babel on a larger scale. Brothers and sisters, God remains faithful. Man remains faithless. God remains patient. Yesterday evening, I said we were going to talk about patience, and yes, we are going to talk about patience this evening. God remains patient. Man remains fickle. To the end, and God triumphs to the end. Paradoxically, and this is Peter Kraft again here, the most human, humane, humanistic, humanly fulfilling thing man can ever say to God is Psalm chapter 9, verse 19. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail, for we are our own worst enemies. And our divine opponent against whom we strive is our best friend and only hope. When I read these words from Peter Kraft, I could not help but think about my own experience as a father. Do I discipline my children? Do I punish my children? Of course I do. Of course I do. But what is my motive? What is my motive as their father? I have four children. I give them consequences all the time. I discipline them because I love them. Right? Love is my motive. So to talk about God's wrath up against God's love, as if punishment has nothing to do with love, that is to misinterpret just not sacred scripture, but family harmony, family order, family peace. Because if there is no discipline, if there is no consequence, if there is no punishment out of love, then ultimately what you will have down the road is disorder, chaos, and dysfunction. God understands that because he is not like a father, but he is a father. He eternally fathers his children perfectly. So please understand that point for what it is. And again, that reflection primarily is drawn from Peter Kraft. All right, 
all that being said, let us jump into Genesis chapter 27. Now we have 46 verses here. I'm not going to read all of these verses. It would take half the program to do so. But if we're going to get at the heart of what is going on here, I do think we need to read uh, quite a few of these verses. So what I think I'm going to do is read through, let's see here, verse 19 maybe, and I'll stop at 19, and then because of the points I want to make, jump to 41 to 46. I may go further than 19 as I'm looking at this. We'll just call upon the Holy Spirit here. All right, chapter 27, verse 1. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me savory food, such as I love. And bring it to me that I may eat, that I may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me savory food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my word as I command you. Go to the flock and fetch me two kids that I may prepare for them savory food for your father such as he loves and you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies there's the interception if you will there's the deception to intercept but jacob said to rebecca his mother behold my brother esau is a hairy man i am a smooth man perhaps my father will feel me and i shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing his mother said to him, Upon me be your curse, my son. Only obey my word and go fetch them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared savory food, such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the kids she put upon his hands and, and upon the smooth part of his neck, and she gave the savory food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. Verse 18, I think we'll go past 19. So he went into his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that you may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac his father who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands, so he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it to me, that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it to him, and he ate, and brought him wine, and he drank. Then he, his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him, and he smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him. 
So there he gives the blessing. In the subsequent verses, uh, Esau loses the blessing, of course. And then out from the lost blessing and Esau's fury, Jacob, in verses 41 to 46, escapes Esau's fury. There we read, Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice, arise, flee to Laban, my brother, in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and fetch you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the Hittite woman. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women such as these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Okay, so <laughs> what's going on there? Well, again, as I've already noted, here as the Ignatius commentary highlights, Jacob intercepts the blessing intended for Esau and really cheats him out of the inheritance of the firstborn blessing. Uh, Jacob, we could also say Rebekah, as his mother Rebekah is the mastermind behind the ruse, guiding him at each crucial step. This is going to be important. We're going to talk about this in a little bit. Uh, my friends, this Genesis narrative is not blind to their underhanded ways. Rather, it really does frown upon Jacob the deceiver and almost pities Esau the victim. It is just as aware, however, that Esau shamefully despised his natural birthright. So there is this juxtaposition going on that we are made to uh, contrast. I, I think what's important for us, my friends, is that this story illustrates how God can further his plan despite humanity's recklessness, right? Despite the failings of his chosen people. We know that that God had already elected Jacob over Esau to bear the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. We talked about that already in chapter 25, verses 21, 22, 23, and following. But to see how this played out, it is really striking that in the end, my friends, God writes straight with crooked lines. And here, my friends, I want to stay with that point, specifically the crooked line, because there is a deep spiritual family lesson to be had as you begin to probe deeper into what is going on here in Genesis chapter 27. I mean, before Jacob and Esau were born, God declared what? That the older would serve the younger. God told Isaac and, and Rebekah that he was going to work through Jacob and not Esau. We read what? That Isaac is 140 years old and he feels like his life, life is almost over. He wants to, what did we talk about? Get his house in order, right? And so he decides that he's going to give the blessing to his oldest son, Esau. And that's where really the trouble begins. Because if you were to take a look at this closely, we see that everything that takes place really takes place out of a broken family. What do I mean? Well, look at some of the things that we see in this particular family as a result of believing that the end justifies the means. We just read verses 1 to 4, huh? 
where Isaac feels he needs to meet secretly with Esau because he knew that Rebekah would object to Isaac's plan, which in of itself should strike us, huh? Why does Isaac feel that he needs to meet secretly with Esau? Doesn't that suggest uh, something wrong in the relationship between Isaac and Rebekah? And then in verse 5, what do we read? That Rebekah eavesdrops on her husband. What was she doing? She was spying on her husband. Why? Because she didn't trust him, right? So here you have Isaac privately meeting with Esau, and then Rebekah eavesdropping, spying on her husband. I don't know about you, but if, if you are either a husband or wife, you, you shouldn't be comfortable with either of those, right? <laughs> so in verse 8, we go on to read that Rebekah and Jacob scheme to deceive their husband and father. What's up with that? I mean, to all of you men out there, can you imagine if your wife was scheming with your son to deceive you, right? And another one of your sons? Goodness. And then in verse 19, we we read it. Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that you may bless me. That's a bold-faced lie. A bold-faced lie to his dad. Brothers and sisters, if I've said it once, I've said it a hundred times, the book of Genesis is an exposition on human nature. It's just fascinating to me, rereading the book of Genesis this time around. I have just really been struck by that. Now, I read verses 41 to 46 because clearly the animosity leads to what? But thoughts of murder. In verses 41 to 46, clear separation in the family. And then in verse 46, <laughs> this is a marriage in spite, right? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the Hittite woman. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women, such as these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Man, bitterness. Jacob got the promised blessing, brothers and sisters, but at what cost? The family was torn apart. Was it worthy of the price? No. When we don't care how we get to a certain end, we will inevitably leave casualties along the way. They were taking shortcuts, and it cost them. There was a lack of confidence in God. Consider, Isaac knew the blessing was for Jacob, but feeling God was mistaken, sought to give him the blessing to Esau. Rebekah feels she cannot leave the matter with God, but instead concocts this grand scheme. The assumption's this. God cannot bring to pass what he promised unless he gets our help. And I'm not talking about cooperation and grace here. (laughs) Every one of these people in this narrative panicked. Isaac was afraid because of his beloved son that Esau would be forgotten. Rebekah was afraid Jacob was going to lose what God promised. Jacob was afraid Esau was going to take his blessing. In each case, the idea is simple. God cannot be trusted. He needed our help. And all of this comes out of what? But fear. It is no wonder that the first homily ever given on the Judean hills surrounding the little town of Bethlehem where an angel appeared to a humble virgin in the simple town of Nazareth was what but fear not. A phrase that has 
echoed up and down sacred scripture. Do not be afraid, we, we read time and time again from the angels. What do we read in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 15? You have not received the spirit of slavery in which you fall back into fear, but the spirit of adoption in which you cry, Abba, Father. It's interesting. We, we've made this point in the past. As hate is often perceived to be the opposite of love, it is in fact fear that is the opposite of love. Hate is, is a byproduct of fear. If we confront our fears, then we will be free of hate and be free to cry, Abba, Father. Fear is what undergirds most forms of human dysfunction. Because we are afraid, we, we crouch protectively around ourselves. Because we are afraid, we lash out at one another. Because we are afraid, we, we don't trust in God's ways. Because we are afraid, we cease to be who God is calling us to be. What overcomes this fear but the presence of God and that supernatural impulse to jump into the unknown and to do so with great courage and trust. Remember, confidence, confidere, to trust, to be of great faith. Incidentally, my friends, I just used the word courage. Insight can be gained by engaging the root of this word. Courage comes from the Latin coraticum, uh, coraticum, which has as its root heart. Now we hear that core heart. So courage is the heart's disposition to be ready to jump, to say yes into the unknown. It really an extraordinary virtue. Courage is tied to the gift of fortitude. And we're talking about this because really, if we are going to remedy what is going on in chapter 27 in our own lives, as we apply it to our own lives, we have to spend time with courage and fortitude. As a gift of the Holy Spirit, fortitude, uh, fortissimo in the Latin, strength, enables us to be patient with ourselves. There's patience. Patient with ourselves and courageous in particular situations, especially when we are facing trials and hardships for love of God. Incidentally, as we face these hardships with the help of the Holy Spirit, additional fruit is produced which helps us to endure greater trials. This is what we see in the likes of a life of St. Maximilian Kolbe, the great saint of Auschwitz, who stepped out of line to sacrifice his life for another prisoner. Great fortitude. So fortitude allows us to grow in our capacity to encounter hardships and ultimately to become more capable of dealing with sorrows that, that often plague souls. You see, St. Maximilian Kolbe in Auschwitz, he didn't give in to the potential sorrow. No, he confronted that sorrow. And he did so in courage. He did so in patience. Because patience regulates sorrow. And as it does, courage regulates fear. Courage regulates fear because it confronts Satan. Again, courage is that virtue that stands firm in the wake of a storm. You need courage to, to speak truth when no one else will. You see, my friends, the deeper we go into the way of perfection, there is not less sorrow per se, but a deeper understanding of why we encounter sorrow. If we are going to make progress in the spiritual life and, and overcome our fears, then patience and fortitude slash courage are quintessential. All right, what about fear of the Lord? We're talking about fear as a negative, but fear is actually intended to be a positive. 
We just mentioned the gift of the Holy Spirit, fortitude. What about the fear of the Lord? Well, we read in Psalm chapter 110 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But what kind of fear is this? It certainly does not mean the fear of God, which causes people to flee from, from every thought and memory of him. That would be silly. As, as something or someone who, who disturbs us or, or upsets us. No. This is what we see in the book of Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. When our first parents, Adam and Eve, after their sin, hide themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. There is fear. There was shame. Hmm? It is St. John Paul II who reminds us, my friends, that this gift is about something much more noble and lofty. It is the sincere and reverential feeling that a person experiences before the tremendous majesty of God. Especially, especially when he reflects upon his own infidelity and the danger of being found wanting, found wanting at the eternal judgment which no one can escape. As St. John Paul II continues, he says, the believer goes and places himself before God with a contrite spirit and a humble heart, knowing well that he must await his own salvation with fear and trembling. There's that all-important passage, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, right? So, fear of the Lord does not mean an irrational fear, but a sense of responsibility and fidelity to the law. There is a certain uh, confidence that the fear of God awakens within us as we encounter God in awe and reverence. Brothers and sisters, Genesis chapter 27 is a narrative that really does illustrate man's brokenness. And for the second half of this evening, we reflected into patience, courage, fortitude, fear of the Lord, because I do want us to understand that, yeah, what is going on in Genesis chapter 27 very well might be going on in our own families. And if it is, these are the virtues, these are the gifts that we need to be thinking about. Huh? Amen? Amen. All right, let us close with a word of prayer. Good and gracious God, we do just give you a special thanks and praise for the gift of another evening, the gift to be able to reflect into the beauty of your word. We thank you for all of those great scholars that have gone before us that Help us better understand the beauty of your word. And as we call upon the Holy Spirit to just be with us and, and be with our reflections, uh, that as you are, we might internalize these deeper truths so as to be a greater servant, a greater son of God. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.